This morning we are finishing up our series entitled Ripple Effect. And over the last few weeks, Pastor Tim has been talking about how we're always sowing seeds in the lives of people around us. Um, How small things become great. And so we sow these small seeds in all the lives around us and they grow. They grow bigger and they grow bigger and they have a ripple effect in the lives of the people in the lives of the world around us. And so in particular, we've been looking at how faith, hope, love, and joy are the fruit of, of good seed that have a ripple effect in our lives and, and, and the lives of those around us. And so we've been focusing our time on the Old Testament. And we've been looking at uh, different characters throughout the Old Testament. And so if you remember, we've, we've looked at faith in the life of Abraham and love in the story of Ruth and hope in Nehemiah. And so this morning, we're looking at joy. Joy in the life of David. Joy in the life of David. Now, I've, I've always wanted to preach from David. Always wanted to preach for David because I'm a David. D.T. David Thomas. But it's not just because we share a name. Uh, As you look at David's life, I find that I just have so much in common with him. All right, so let me me explain what I mean. If you remember when David was chosen as king, right, God tells Samuel, what does he tell him? He says, go, go go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem, right, and you're going to find the king there. And so Samuel goes to Jesse's house, and all of David's brothers come in, and they pass before Samuel. And what does Samuel do? He says, no. No, 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 and so on and so on and so forth, right? And so Samuel's standing there and he goes, okay, well, is, is this it? Because none of these are it. And, and, and Jesse goes, oh yeah, we've got the young one. Um, he's out keeping the sheep, right? And what does Samuel say to Jesse? He says, well, go get him, bring him in. Let's see if this is it. And, and so this is 1 Samuel 6. I'm going to pick up in verse 11 because this is what it says. It says, well, send and get him. For we will not sit down until he comes. And so, and so they send for, for David, and they bring him in, and this is what it says in verse 12, and this is why I just find so much uh, connection with David. It says that he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> right? So we read, we read about David, and he is relatable. And I think there's something about David that's relatable to all of us. Because on the one hand, he's this young boy who defeats this giant Goliath with a rock and a sling. And he becomes this amazing warrior and this king. And he's known as what? A man after God's own heart. And he's a Renaissance man. He can play the harp. And he writes the Psalter, the Psalms. And yet, on the other hand, David commits some terrible, terrible sins. Sins of adultery and murder. He's complacent in some areas of his his life that cause deep pain and hurt in his family. And so I think that he's so relatable to us because his life is, is on display. He's so human. He's real. And isn't it true You know, as we read the Bible, and especially as we read the Bible in the Old Testament, that sometimes we tend to put people on a pedestal, don't we? We tend to put 
these Old Testament characters on a pedestal, and we look at them and we go, there was no way that I could be like that person. I could, ne- I could never have faith like Abraham when he takes Isaac up to sacrifice him, or, or the courage of Esther. There's no way um, that I could do that. And I get it, that person didn't have it all together, but if that's the standard, then there's just no way I can do that. Now, we all know that's not true, right? Because if you really dive into all those people's lives, what? They were a mess, weren't they? I mean, they were complete mess and have massive flaws, all but Jesus. Nevertheless, it can seem like they have it all together. But David, no, not David. David's a little different, isn't he? Because he may have been king, but he, he wasn't always a good king. And so he was a mess. And I think we resonate because we know that we're a mess. And maybe it's just that misery loves company, but I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. I think that we know that we're broken and we're sinful and that we're a mess. Just like David. Yet as tough and as tragic as David's life is, there is hope. And I wonder if that's not what makes David's story so attractive to us. Right? Is that through all the mess and the ups and the downs that there's hope, the promise of hope. The connection's not in the mess, but in the hope of who God is. And that's why I think the Psalms are so powerful. You know, you think about the Psalms and the Psalter. Most of them are written by David or somebody closely connected with David. And the Psalms are Israel's their prayer book, their hymn book, they were read and they were sung in worship. It was Jesus's, the Psalms would have been Jesus's prayer book. And they're powerful because they are real and they are raw and they're full of wonder and they're full of awe and they're full of pain and fear. And so you hear David say in one breath, what? Praise the Lord. And on the other hand, and in the other breath, he goes, where are you, God? Right, so I think they're so, so powerful. William Gladstone, who was a prime minister, 19th century prime minister in Great Britain, once said of the Psalter, he said, All the wonders of Greek civilization heaped together are less wonderful than the simple book of Psalms. And get this, he says, The history of the human soul in relation to its maker. The history of the human soul in relation to its maker. He's talking about the book of Psalms. And so if you think about the life of David, the good, the bad, the ugly, and you read his story, and then you read the Psalms, there's several common threads that begin to emerge, threads that flow beneath the surface of his life, threads like faith and hope and love and joy. And so this morning we're looking at joy in the life of David. And the question that we're asking is, is how does forgiveness produce joy? Joy in our lives and joy in the lives of others around us. So if you have your Bibles, turn this morning with us to Psalm 32. And if you don't have it, the words are going to be on the screen. But Psalm 32, hear God's word this morning. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up 
as by the heat of summer. Salah, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salah, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Again, Salah, it's a musical term. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Since the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our King, we pray you would open our hearts and our eyes this morning to the joy that is found in being a people who are forgiven. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so Psalm 32 is known as one of the penitential psalms, right? And the most famous of the penitential psalms is Psalm 51, uh, that you're probably all familiar with. But, but Psalm 32 is in that same category, but it's more than just a confession, right? Because David actually moves beyond confession in Psalm 32. He moves beyond confession to the fruit of confessing your sin, forgiveness and joy and, and thanksgiving. And what he does in this psalm, he's walking us through his process of repentance. You see, the psalmist has come full circle. And so what we're going to do this morning is walk through the passage together and see how forgiveness produces joy. And we're going to dive right in because the psalmist dives right in. If you look at verses 1 and 2, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. All right, so the first thing that we see is the blessedness of being forgiven. The blessedness of being forgiven. He kind of begins with the end, doesn't he? You would, you would think that he would end there, but he starts with that in two different times. You are blessed. He comes out strong. And you kind of get this immediate sense of joy, don't you? That there is blessedness in being forgiven. And know what he says is not being blessed or being blessed. It's not blessed is the one whose bank account is full. Blessed is the one who has a job that's secure, whose children obey perfectly. Blessed is the one who got the starting position on the team. Blessed is the one who got into the right college. But the forgiven. Blessed is the man, blessed is the one who is forgiven. You see that it's not these external things or ways that we would define someone as being blessed, but it's an internal thing. Being forgiven. And you break this down and you see why why it's forgiveness and why it's not this list of other things. And it doesn't mean that those don't equate that, but specifically here, the psalmist is talking about being forgiven. And you see why, because the psalmist understands the seriousness of sin. Right? There's kind of a threefold aspect of sin 
in these first two verses, right? Transgression, who's covered. Sin, excuse me, transgression, forgiven. Sin, covered. Iniquity, not counted against us. See, the psalmist understands just how serious is our sin. The sheer rebellion and the malice and the ill intent and selfishness and pride and anger and adultery. And the list can go on and on and on. If I kept going on, you would begin to feel more uncomfortable and as it should. Because it is a serious affront. Sin is a serious affront to the God in heaven, to our God in heaven. And sin is a serious affront that put Jesus on the cross. And so he shows the seriousness of sin, but he also shows something else. And the second thing we see in this passage about the joy of being forgiven is that we see the nature of forgiveness. Because he has these three ways to describe sin, and each has a unique action of God in relationship to that sin. It kind of shows the completeness of God's forgiveness. Right, so the tr transgression forgiven literally means to take away the burden of rebellion. Right, the sin covered literally to cover up our deviations of the law so that they're no longer visible. Does not count our iniquity against us. Literally does not charge what we owe. Does not charge us what we owe. And if you just kind of double-clicked on one of those... Or just take the second one, right? Whose sin is covered. And if you think about it, I had a pastor in college say this one time, and it has always stuck with me. If you had a video of every aspect of your life right now, if we put a video of your life up on these two screens, and on one side it was a camera that followed you everywhere, not that you got time off from the camera, but it followed you everywhere and just videoed the external reality of your life, right? we got a split screen going here. So on one side is what, what it looks like from the outside, and you never got to hide from it. And then let's say on the other side of the screen was a video of what was happening and what was the thoughts that were going through your mind as those actions, and they were lined up in perfect timing, and we just rolled that beautiful footage. You wouldn't be here this morning, would you? No, you would run and hide. You wouldn't be in Thomasville. You wouldn't be in this state. You wouldn't be caught here, would you? Why? Because the idea of someone seeing every part of us is terrifying, isn't it? And it's exposing because it, it exposes who we really are. And it has been exposing since the garden. If you think back to Genesis when Adam and Eve first sinned, the first thing that happens is, what does it say? It says they were naked and ashamed. And they tried to cover themselves, but ultimately God had to be the one who would cover them. Right? So you begin to see just the seriousness of just that one aspect of forgiveness, that our sins have been covered. And you begin to see the seriousness of our sin, but also the nature of forgiveness. And so to the degree that we understand how sinful we are to the, is the degree to which we understand the blessing of being forgiven. And so we see the blessedness of being forgiven. We see the nature 
of forgiveness. And the third thing that we see is the cost of avoiding forgiveness. The cost of avoiding forgiveness. If you read this chapter, uh, verse 3 and 4 here, just listen to how the psalmist is writing about unconfessed sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Right? And you get, you, as you read this, you get a sense of both physical and spiritual pain associated with unconfessed sin. Right, Bones wasting, groaning, no relief, this heaviness, this weakness, this desert that you're living in. And you, you get a glimpse of what, how costly it is when we avoid seeking forgiveness. Right, Spurgeon said that the Spanish Inquisition with all its tortures was nothing to the inquest of conscience, which holds conscience within the heart. And he goes on, he says, God's finger can crush. What must his hand be? And that pressing heavily and continuously. How true that is, isn't it, friends? Think about it. When God's hand is heavy on your conscience, there is no relief. And so this morning, my question to you as you're thinking about that is, what about you? What about you? Is your heart and your mind heavy with something that you've kept silent about this morning? As you think about this, are you at all experiencing what the psalmist is writing about, the heaviness of sin that hasn't been dealt with. Now, thankfully, David doesn't leave us here, but he gives us a remedy. And the fourth thing we see is the key to forgiveness. It's confession. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up, cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, relief is only found when we come before our Savior confessing our guilt. And there's power in saying that I'm wrong. That I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And it's hard to say it to another person, isn't it? But, but to God, it's often harder. Yet the only way to really find true Relief and true forgiveness is to take our sins before the Lord and confess them. You know, it's kind of interesting. It's something that even in our parenting, we're, we're beginning to help our children to see, to do right now is really the process of what he's talking about. He's talking about owning it, owning your sin. And it's, it's interesting that you have, to, you have to be taught how to own sin. Let me tell you what you don't have to be taught is how it wasn't you who did it. Right? That's a, there's a very common phrase at our house with an with a almost seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. And you know what that phrase is? Not me. I didn't do it. It wasn't my fault. And so what we're teaching right now is this idea of, of owning it. You can be sorry for accident. Sorry about that. That was an accident. Sorry is for spilling water. But owning our sinfulness and our sin. Because when you say, I'm, I was wrong, it takes it to a whole nother level, doesn't it? 
And we see it with our children where you go, did you hit your sister? Well, it was an accident. I, 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 I didn't mean to. And you go, okay. And you're calmly, calmly, right? But I watched you. I watched you. You do it. Okay, well, yes, I did hit him. Okay, well, what happened before? But I didn't mean to. Oh, you didn't mean to. What happened before? Well, she hit me. Oh. So she took something from you or she hit you and she made you mad. But it was an accident, right? And so you begin to make these connections with them. The more you ask questions. And so when you find out, oh, she, was, she made you mad. And what we're trying to learn how to do is, well, what did you want to do to her? And it's interesting out of the mouth of a child because they're, they're able to articulate it. And their honesty is so refreshing because I wanted to hurt her. I wanted to hurt her for hurting me. And at that point, we're able to draw a connection. We're able to go, did you mean to? Yes, I meant to. Yes, I meant to. And then we take them before the Lord and we, we ask God for forgiveness. And then we can ask our siblings for forgiveness, but there's power in owning our sin. Our sin before the Lord and our sin with other people is by naming it, calling it, and owning it. This morning, is there anything in your life that you need to own before the Lord? Is there anything in your heart in your life, you need to own before the Lord and own towards someone else in your life. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a parent. Run to the throne of mercy this morning. Name it. He knows it already. Confess your guilt and receive forgiveness. Because the psalmist, as we're seeing, he experiences the relief of being forgiven and now he moves from experiencing that relief to exhorting others to do likewise. And so if you look in verses 6 through 10, what we see is the encouragement for others to seek forgiveness. And so at six, verses 6 through 10, we're going to read them for the sake of time, but we see the ripple effect that comes from being forgiven. And it's kind of this concept of free people, free people. Right? If you've ever met somebody who's who's humbly honest about their faults and about who they are. And there's something immediately attractive to them. Why? Because here's a person who's acknowledging that they don't have it all together. And you want to be around that person. Free people, free people. And the psalmist has been forgiven. And now he's encouraging others to do likewise. And so he says, seek the Lord. Don't be stubborn. Run to him. Trust him. And he's calling others to do the same thing that he's just shown the process of in his own life. And so as we begin to make this connection between David and ourselves, you have to stop and at least some point think, wait a minute, Jesus, if the Psalter was Jesus' prayer book, how did Jesus pray this? Because he was sinless, right? So he doesn't have any sin to confess, and you start to see it, and you go, well, I, how does it doesn't make sense. As one of my seminary professors used to say, he said, Jesus 
prayed Psalm 32 as our representative. You know, that he can affirm the blessedness of forgiveness because he knows that it is the work on the cross, and not just the work, but his work on the cross as our priest that is the basis of the forgiveness of sin. Jesus prays it on our behalf. And if you even look at the threefold aspect of sin that we talked about earlier, right, that your transgressions have been forgiven. You see, Jesus understands that the burden has been lifted because he bore the weight of our sin. That our sin has been covered by his shed blood. That our iniquity is not counted against us because he paid the penalty for us. See, Jesus felt the physical and the spiritual weight of our sin. And as our representative, he now confesses so that we can receive forgiveness. And so there's so much more that we can unpack, but my hope and my prayer this morning is that as we begin to look at this and as we begin to see David's experience and then Christ's experience on our behalf that we too can understand the joy that comes with being forgiven. The joy, not just the happiness. Happiness is a feeling. You can be happy about what you ate for breakfast. What happens when you eat something bad for breakfast? Well, you're not very happy, right? We're talking about joy, this undercurrent that drives your life and moves your trajectory forward. And it comes through being forgiven. And so this morning, have you experienced the joy of being forgiven? The joy of being forgiven. Not that your circumstances are always great because they're not going to always be great. But have you experienced the joy in your bones and in your soul of knowing that you don't have to pay the penalty for your sins, that Jesus paid them on your behalf? Have you experienced that this morning? And if not, my encouragement this morning is run to him. Confess it. Receive the forgiveness and the love of the good, good Father, which we just sang about. You know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, to the degree that you have been forgiven, you will forgive others. And so maybe you've received that forgiveness this morning, but you're having a really hard time forgiving others. Are you extending the forgiveness this morning that has been extended to you? Are you extending that forgiveness to those around you, to those who've hurt you and who've wronged you? Think about that this morning. And finally, the third thing, look around you this morning. Who can benefit from your experience? Who can benefit from the experience that you have had of being forgiven? Maybe it's a particular type of sin. Maybe it's something else in your life. But as you, as you look at the people who God has surrounded you with, who can benefit from the fact that you have been forgiven. Because just like David wanted Israel to experience the joy of being forgiven, you too have the opportunity to, to, for those around you to experience the same joy that you have experienced. And so this morning, think about that. This week, think about that. Who has God placed in your life? 
who needs to hear the message of redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our King, we thank you this morning for the joy of being forgiven. We pray this morning that you would convict us of unconfessed sin. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never had that experience of confessing sin, that you would allow them that opportunity today. And God, we pray that you would convict us where we need convicting and that you would build us up in areas that we need to be built up, that the truth that we have been forgiven will permeate our hearts and our lives, that we'll be able to claim that truth even though we may not feel it and walk in light of the new life that you have given us as sons and daughters of the King. We pray all this in Christ's name.